Since Brexit, uh, the UK was able to make its own tariff schedule and it lowered a lot of the tariffs, it eliminated a lot of fractional tariffs, it eliminated some tariff lines, and another thing it did is it uh, increased the total number of lines that are duty-free. So that's one of the places where even the United States does better than, than Europe. We have more than half of our lines are duty-free. And now I think it's around 60% of lines or more for the UK are duty-free. Economists tend to agree that global trade has been a positive force for humanity. It allows countries to specialize, to be more competitive, it delivers higher standard of living for consumers through more choice and lower prices. Yet the political winds seem to be pointing against free trade, particularly across Europe, the United States, but also much the rest of the world. There's been the emergence of not just growing tariff barriers in some places, but also increasing regulatory limits on trade. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, are trade barriers growing and why? To discuss, I'm excited to be joined by Philip Thompson. He's a policy analyst with Americans for Tax Reform, as well as the author of the International Trade Barrier Index, which we're going to be discussing today. Philip, let's start with, why did you choose to make this uh, index of international trade? Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I'm excited to be in London and to talk about this. So we started the Trade Barrier Index in 2019. And we started it because we saw in the media and in even academic circles that a lot of the narrative around trade was this is about political power. It's about uh, correcting the trade deficit. And lost was what really brought us to where we are and have the global trade rules we have was the understanding that there's trade barriers out there. And these are in, get in the way of individuals and businesses trading their own goods and services across borders on their own terms. And through our property, the Property Rights Alliance, we produced the International Property Rights Index. And we thought we can leverage our experience with that and contextualize all this trade data out there and make a trade barrier index. So researchers and activists and anybody interested in trade, they can uh, go to tradebarrierindex.org and they can see a ranking of which countries use which trade barriers, uh, how many they use, what types they use, and you can see uh, that it's, these are what's in the way of people doing their own business and using their own skills and just trading. What they do inside their country, they're just doing it also internationally as well. Yeah, I think this is a, an issue almost the way we talk about trade. We often talk about trade as how much the UK is, is trading uh, with the US or with the EU, but it's not really about trading between countries or, as it sounds like, between governments. It's really trading between individuals. It's, it's me having that capacity to buy something, a product for the United States, and so it's a decision whether or not um, we're going to let me do that, buy off a, an American company, or whether you're going to make that more difficult. Exactly. If you fast forward from 2019 to where we are now, the latest initiative of the Biden administration, so after tariff man, the Trump presidency, is we have an initiative to restrict uh, chips going to China. Mm. And it's not about, uh, it changes how they talk about it from day to day, but the basic message from the White House is we need to stop China, we need to slow China down from getting this technology. It's not just about chips and the Chinese military, it's just we don't want American chips 
and, and the Chinese economy because they are faster or do more processing. And uh, these are things made by, invented by people. They put their research into this. There's a market demand for it. Uh, and the government is stepping in saying, you just can't do that in China anymore, the second largest market. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the chips one, we can come back to that in, in a little bit later, perhaps. I think it's quite a fascinating one for the fact that it's not clear that it's had the intended impact. It was meant to stop China's technological development. And, and according to some uh, recent um, product releases, particularly from Huawei in their latest mobile phones, it seems like they're pretty much caught up. To, to where the, the US manufacturers are at, and it's forced them to innovate domestically um, in order to compete more heavily with China. So it hasn't necessarily, you know, if you think in global power competition terms, which it seems a lot of people do, it doesn't necessarily work. Um, but, but let's come back for a second to the, the barrier itself. Um, so there's a, several different categories of tariffs, or, or I should say of trade restrictions that you look at in the index. Now you start off with tariffs, which is probably what people are most familiar with as a barrier, as putting a, a particular tax on an import of a good. There's also all sorts of other restrictions on trade. So the index looks at tariffs, non-tariff barriers, services restrictions, and then we have a fourth component called facilitation, which is kind of a catch-all term of uh, things behind the border that can get in the way. So it's logistics performance, uh, property rights, uh, the number of regional trade agreements, and also we have a measure, the only measure we do in-house is the digital trade restrictions. And these are all each of the four main components and their subcomponents are equally weighted. This is to make it digestible and you just get a top-down picture of how many barriers there are. So it's not as subjective of uh, weighting one thing against somebody else, something else, and you have a big uh, back and forth with the economists. It's just a big picture of where these trade barriers are, how many there are, and, and you can see how different countries use them. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's probably important to emphasize here because for a lot of people when they think about uh, restrictions on trade, they do often just come back to tariffs when, when you know, I don't know whether you can make a price pr precise proportion of what the impact is of, of different other restrictions on trade, but it has just as much to do with domestic regulation about whether or not you're allowed to trade a good into another country. And the, you know, the classic cases are that uh, in the EU, British um, individuals, British businesses aren't allowed to import certain candy from the US because it has uses a certain colouring that was banned under the EU regulation, it's still banned under UK regulation. Now that's not, I suppose, a traditional trade barrier in the sense that it's not a restriction on uh, you being able to, um, a, or like a, a tariff or a subsidy or something like that, but it's, it's like a, re a domestic regulatory decision that's having a big impact on our capacity to trade. Right. Uh, this is a great point. Uh, the United States, people think, is the most free trade country. We've been out in the past uh, decades in the forefront saying we need free trade. Now it's hard to find a politician that can say that in public. <laughs> but we have, uh, we're very well placed on the index on tariffs. We want to have one of the lowest average tariffs out there. But we also, what's surprising in the index is you can see that we have the most, the United States has the most non-tariff barriers in any, any country. Usually it's, a t it's a very close between the United States and China on how many non-tariff barriers there are. Uh, but in the latest edition, it's the United States by far, and most of those are going to be SPS controls. These are there for uh, sanitary and health safety reasons. They're applied to mostly to agricultural products. 
there's technical barriers for trade. These are different labeling requirements, testing requirements. And these non-tariff barriers, uh, when you, there's several different studies that look at how restrictive they are. They're always way more restrictive than tariffs. And a lot of them can completely block out a good from the country. Uh, and, and because they're, they're there for health and safety reasons, people don't tend to question it. But we had a, we've come out of a crisis uh, two years ago where there was an infant formula mm. uh, shortage in the United States and people became attuned to that. Uh, there's some regulations at the FDA say you, can, you can't get infant formula from somewhere else, even though it's good for Europe, it's good for Australia, it's not good for Americans, according to the FDA. Um, I find a lot of these for my wife who uh, complains, why can't we get this uh, skincare product or suntan lotion? We just had the hottest summer on record. We had, uh, and we had AOC, uh, uh, Alexandria Cortez from Congress complaining, why can't we get sunscreen from abroad? Uh, the FDA regulates it as a medicine, and so uh, we have these huge uh, import barriers. We haven't approved a new, a new one in more than a decade. So it's, it's, it's people are, it was surprising at first to see that the United States is actually 65 on the index because of these uh, a big contributors, these huge number of non-tariff barriers. I think people are getting tuned in that there's a big regulatory apparatus that keeps out a lot of goods, not just tariffs. And of course, often it's the, the, in, in the same way we, we understood traditionally that a, the producer would advocate for a, a direct tax, a tariff on a, on a potential competitive product from overseas. Producers these days, of course, just as likely to advocate for some kind of regulatory barrier. They'll, they'll put it in health and safety terms or uh, some need to pr protect um, the production styles and the, the um, uh, animal rights of or the particular use of a pesticide or something. They'll put it in those terms, but ultimately it has the exact same effect of restricting trade. So I suppose the question then becomes, uh, so you mentioned the US does, I suppose for many of us, say surprisingly poorly on the index. Where does the UK come? The UK has, uh, this is a good news trade story. It's, Usually we can rely on the UK on uh, good, good news for trade, for free trade. So after uh, Brexit, the UK, uh, the European Union is pretty well placed on the, on the index. But since Brexit, uh, the UK was able to make its own tariff schedule and it lowered a lot of the tariffs. It eliminated a lot of fractional tariffs and eliminated some tariff lines. And another thing it did is it uh, increased the total number of lines that are duty free. So that's one of the places where even the United States does better than, than Europe. We have more than half of our lines are duty-free. And now I think it's around 60% of lines or more for the UK are duty-free. And uh, but then, so that's on the tariff section. Mm. Uh, the UK also replicated a lot of its uh, trade agreements, which is more than the United States also, which is the United States only has 14, which places it, which is a big penalty on the on the U.S. score, which is the other reason why it's at 65. So uh, the U.K. has uh, continued signing trade agreements since uh, Brexit, so it's added CPTPP, it's added an uh, agreement with Australia, and there's always a couple more that uh, are almost done, so we'll see if there's a U.K.-India agreement, but on that front, uh, the U.K. has been improving its score, and it's now 
uh, eighth on the index and uh, well above the European Union countries. So this is actually, I think, quite intriguing and probably hasn't really been discussed much in, in UK debate, which is uh, Brexit was often seen, often portrayed internationally as a kind of closing or down or closing of the borders, closing of trade relations um, with the EU and the rest of the world. But it, it seems like when, when you put it in, in these terms, it's kind of almost the opposite story, which is the UK has remained just as open to the EU um, but has become more open to the rest of the world as a result of having independent trade policy. There's very s small new uh, barriers between the UK and the European Union and the type of paperwork uh, trade has to go through. now. Much less than ideal. It's, yeah, but uh, on the volumes of what's being traded between the UK and the EU hasn't really changed. It's uh, much easier now to trade with other countries than uh, when it was in the EU. And now there's more market access for UK and other countries. So we should see that increasing. And what you said, what, we get, what people get from trade, living standards, uh, quality of goods should be increasing. Uh, we would expect that too. So we've heard uh, just recently that the idea of a US-UK trade deal is now off the tables with Biden, at least until the next election. And I think that's something a lot of people kind of hoped would, would come, at least in the those who supported the free trade, that there'd be this quite significant deal with the US. I wonder what, what you make of this news. Uh, after Brexit, a trade deal with the UK was something on everyone's radar, and we're like-minded countries. We have a uh, big uh, intangible economy based on intellectual property. Uh, we have similar uh, market systems and we have also the desire from the UK to uh, create a new trading regime based on science-based risks and rather than precautionary and protectionist measures. And a lot of the way the non-tariff barriers and uh, tariffs work in the EU is to favor EU economies. And you have the UK leaving and has a outward focus to find new markets and with the United States. And uh, at the time we had the Trump presidency, uh, which was negotiating a free trade deal with the United Kingdom. And it was always something that was almost there. Mm. And then uh, that negotiating, that uh, permission from Congress to negotiate trade agreements failed, I mean, expired before it was finished. And, but the Biden administration has been much more unconventional, has not asked Congress for this uh, permission uh, in this whole presidency to negotiate trade agreements that reduce tariffs and increase mar market access. And uh, what's the news today is that there was a possibility that there was going to be an IPEF-style economic partnership. This is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework that the Biden administration is negotiating with 15 other countries that has uh, the idea that they can talk about different chapters of a trade agreement, but it wouldn't have to go through Congress. There wouldn't be enforceability, and it wouldn't include reductions on tariffs. It might include reductions on non-tariff barriers. But the, the news today is that that is not, uh, that they were going to probably start negotiations in December, and they're putting it off. Uh, um, until probably, I think, for a year and a half, so after the election cycle. So it was never 
really something that was going to happen. Particularly uh, under Biden, who you know, perhaps famously really lent into his uh, Irish heritage, and, and as opposed to Trump, who, um, despite his general negative sentiments about trade, claimed to be pro-Britain and pro-UK. Um, so I suppose the, the political situation has shifted against, but it, it seemed to me at least at a technical level it was always um, maybe not a false hope, but uh, the, the possibility might have been exaggerated. It, it just seems like there's so much distance on a few kind of quite key market access issues where the UK isn't necessarily willing to open up its market in ways that it should, you know, famously chlorinated washed chicken, which is, uh, for, for those um, who pay attention, is not particularly dangerous in any any way, but it scares people quite a lot. And in reverse, America and the US is, as you already said earlier, is famously restrictive on agricultural imports. So to, to get a, a kind of proper free trade deal with the US is just genuinely very hard. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of... Uh negative attention in both countries on the advantages of a trade agreement. Um, so I guess both have decided so far to uh, keep that out of the election cycle at least. So we can see what happens a year from now. Yeah, I mean, there'd, there'd obviously be huge other benefits to a trade deal beyond, you know, beyond speaking, uh, thinking about agriculture. There's, there's obviously massive other sectors that, that could be opened up to UK, US deal, even financial services or pharmaceuticals. One thing that has happened without a clear path forward and the UK looking for other markets and other economic uh, partnerships is state level uh, memorandum of understanding between the UK and governors of different states. Mm. These are kind of a new idea and it doesn't count as a trade agreement with uh, increase in market access but they can talk about things like occupational licensing uh, so that when there is an architect or a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse, uh, they can, uh, both countries can approve of their, mm. uh, create different pathways forward for different people to work in different places, which would be, uh, it was, has been suggested that in a UK-US trade agreement, uh, we have all these different chapters now in trade agreements, there could be one on immigration, and one that uh, leads to people being able to work and study and, uh, and this, using the, the mechanism of trade agreement to make that more smooth. So there's a lot of uh, to look forward to uh, when our political leaders are ready to uh, stomach a real comprehensive trade agreement. Um, let's think then about other ways to increase global trade. I think this is an interesting point where it seems that at a multilateral level, things really are, I suppose, struggling. Um, the, the Doha round more or less failed. The, the WTO is um, not necessarily a, a dying organisation by any measure, but certainly weakened um, administratively. Um, but it's, instead, we're probably seeing that in some ways being replaced by these kind of like multilateral deals, uh, CPTPP probably being the prime example thereof, Bilateral deals potentially between more countries, thinking you know, U.S. Uh, sorry, U.K. India. Um, it seems to me that you know it's kind of almost like a least worst approach in some ways. Although I suppose alternatives to that you can say all trade deals are nonsense. You should just be going towards unilateral free trade. You should just cut your barriers yourself and don't worry about what other people do because that's most beneficial to your citizens. I'm wondering where you kind of stand on this question of how to best, I suppose, pursue a, a free trade agenda. What what would you um, advocate for, expect, maybe what is 
realistic or what is ideal might be different, but how, how would you go about um, pursuing free trade? So it's a little bit controversial and uh, when we were making the index that we have a component there that uh, on the number of regional trade agreements or free trade agreements the country has, uh, because ideally countries would just be reducing their trade barriers unilaterally. Mm. And, uh, but there's a difficulty politically when you're just looking within your own market, it's easier to, for protectionists to corner it off. So there's an advantage in having trade agreements because you get countervailing forces from abroad saying, we want to sell, sell our sunscreen in your market and, and they can highlight these are the trade barriers that keep us out. Um, so going forward with, without uh, clear hunger for real comprehensive trade agreements that we've seen in the past, we've seen uh, more of these plural, plurilateral agreements at the, at the WTO and initiatives to have joint statements to talk about our desire to talk about this <laughs> and the future. Uh, right now at the WTO, the U.S. has pulled its position on digital trade uh, so this has caused a lot of, uh, uh, the United States has been the one uh, to, for, so for context, um, there is not at the WTO a uh, mechanism that enforces digital trade rules. And so since the time of uh, the 90s, when people are just getting used to email, there's been some kind of uh, working group at the WTO. And now the latest is this joint statement initiative where uh, a large group of countries can, the purpose is that they can talk about and agree on, these are the principles a digital trade agreement should have. And the United States has been at the forefront saying that data should be able to cross borders. Mm. If there's any rules, uh, they should be least restrictive on data uh, if, for security concerns, uh, even that like localization of data isn't necessary. What really matters is uh, the rules in place and the architecture to keep data secure no matter where it is and that law enforcement and stuff should be able to access it when they get a warrant or whatever are the, uh, according to the domestic legal processes in each country. So the United States has pulled away all its uh, negotiating position there and has uh, now, now there's not a country at the forefront saying this is what the free trade standard should be. So that's caused a lot of uh, you know, uh, backpedaling from, we'll see how that plays out, but without a strong advocate there, it doesn't look good for free trade, for, uh, for digital. Di digital commerce at yeah. the WTO. I mean, the, the, I suppose if, if you know, the, the WTO process isn't necessarily functioning as it should, the, the, the least worst alternative is maybe signing these trade deals. I mean, there's probably the benefit in terms of these kind of bilateral or multilateral deals that even if you'd ideally like to do it unilaterally, politically it's much easier to do something bilateral, both saying to your kind of domestic audience, well, not only are we letting goods into our market, but they're letting our goods into their market. I know we probably shouldn't, you know, if you're to be a free trade absolutist, you should only really focus in on um, imports and you shouldn't care about exports because that's sending your goods to somewhere else. Like the emphasis is, is often wrong. But since politically, no matter what, a, a trade minister is going to have to talk about um, imports uh, as well as exports and particularly emphasise the benefits for, for British business, even if that's not necessarily the ideal focus. And therefore, these kind of deals have some useful function there to show that there's benefits across um, different parts of society. 
So we see these different regional initiatives popping up. Uh, there's uh, one on digital, econ digital econ commerce, the DEPA agreement with Australia and New Zealand and Singapore, where they can talk about these principles, but it's mm. uh, not enforceable. Um, but at least they have a space to talk about it. At the WTO, it's uh, really hard right now. Well, we have uh, the ministerial coming up in, uh, in February, and there should be a good agreement on uh, fisheries and stopping illegal and uh, fishing and excessive subsidies for overfishing as uh, what people are looking forward to at the WTO. Uh, but uh, we'll see what else after that. Yeah. So it seemed remiss to me, um, I suppose we've, we've kind of put forward a generally positive case of free trade. We've talked about the benefits of removing barriers. Um, as you kind of acknowledge is almost a premise of your work that the debate, particularly in the US, I would say to some extent in the UK, although nowhere near as extreme, is very, uh, or increasingly at the very least, um, anti-free trade. There's, there's the narrative that I think really got a, a kind of existed for, for many decades in the US, but really was given a lot of steam by Donald Trump, that trade is evil and bad and, and wrong, and that the US has been screwed by the international trading system, particularly by um, China entering the WTO, that um, China cheats on the rules, they subsidize their businesses, uh, they don't allow um, foreign competitors to come in and invest in any meaningful way, they steal IP and property rights, um, that you know, particularly the, the world system isn't working and China being is the main culprit of that and therefore it is completely justified to significantly reduce or, or punish China. Chips Act being one example of it, but obviously things like steel tariffs, Trump has said he wants a 10% tariff or on every good coming into the US. So there does seem to be a lot of energy on the anti-free trade side. And then obviously there's an argument as well about the impacts on the working class and lost jobs and negative impacts of free trade as well. I wonder what you make of that whole debate. You know, is, is there something, some truth to it that you do need to consider the impact of the, the CCP in China and the negative impacts domestically on some sectors of trade? Or, or is that all overblown? So this is all the case in point of the harm and thinking of exports are good points and imports are bad points and there's winners and losers based on this trade deficit. Uh, Trump imposed these 301 tariffs. Uh, these are 301 means it was an unfair trade practice, so we put tariffs on. And then we imposed the national security tariffs for steel and aluminum. Uh, on all countries around the world, including the UK, where we get our steel for our submarines from. So uh, what's happened since then is there's been a truce with China. We had a phase one agreement, which locked in all the tariffs that are there. And so now uh, we still have 20% uh, higher tariffs on our imports from China, which have only increased. Our trade deficit has increased. All the data shows that Americans paid for all these tariffs. Uh, quickly, when we impose the steel and aluminum tariffs, uh, China is not one of the top 10 countries we import steel or aluminum from. That's from the European Union and UK and other allies. So they quickly uh, agreed to tariff rate quotas to lock in their current uh, level of steel and aluminum we import from them, except for the European Union, which is our largest trade partner, so they had the most to lose to locking in a rate. So there's now uh, 
negotiations for a global steel and aluminum arrangement, which gets pushed back whenever uh, they set a deadline because they can't agree to anything there. Uh, so what's happened is Americans have paid for all these tariffs. We still import everything from the same places. If these are really things you want to fix, you need to trade with other people. You need more trade agreements. You need to get more market access and allow more market access for allies. We don't have a, the United States doesn't have a trade agreement with Japan. It doesn't have a trade agreement with uh, a number of other countries that are in with the, with the EU. With, with the EU, with, with the with UK. UK. Yeah. And so uh, this should be everybody's example of why and, and to learn from this lesson, but it looks like uh, we might be learning this again in the next administration. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting fact that for the, the relatively small number of um, steel jobs that were protected, something like 100,000 steel jobs, there were um, potentially millions. Like half a million people directly use steel. In exactly. So if you, if you try to limit the import of a raw good, the, the downstream effect of that is quite significant on other businesses and then, of course, on consumers as well. So, And the economy has the economies of scale and the government uh, attention to it to take advantage of all these inefficiencies is China. So if you don't have uh, a trade plan that includes trading with other countries, you just have a China plan and to make it more expensive for Americans. So if you look at the government rev revenue from tariffs, which used to be like less than a percent, it's huge now as a percent of GDP. It's been a big way to grow, grow government, increase taxes, and has not uh, been good for national security. It's not been good for steel jobs. It hasn't been good for anybody. So really, ultimately, just a bit of a tax on uh, US consumers and, and US businesses that, that use all those products. I think the other element, though, um, and this is the, the story that, that you tell, is often told about the rise of populism, um, is the impact of foreign trade, particularly the moving of uh, manufacturing out of the US, out of the UK, out of Europe. Um, to Mexico, China, Southeast Asia, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the kind of negative impact that's had on certain communities, certain areas that have been left behind in that kind of economic transformation. What do you make to some of those arguments? Less the ones about, you know, I suppose, China's security threat, but more about, well, trade has winners and losers. You know, and, and I think everyone's always known this, of course, that uh, trade is generally better off for all people, but if you're in a sector that is trade exposed, you might be worse off as a result of an opening up of trade of more competition um, to your sector, and, and you might there are potential losers as well as winners. Even if there are more even if there are more winners than losers, there are still those losers, and that can have a, a negative impact on a, a narrow set of people, but a very negative impact on a narrow set of people. This is part of an idea that's out there about being able to make things with your hands and tangible things and seeing uh, workers in front of you as this being uh, something that can get lost with international trade. Mm. The value of manufacturing production in the United States is at an all-time high. It keeps increasing. Uh, there's been a lot of increase in uh, technology we use to make stuff, so we don't need as many people or as many man hours to make stuff. But they have moved, and they've moved out of uh, what's considered traditional or institutional manufacturing centers. Uh, they've moved from like places like Michigan down to places in uh, South Carolina and Georgia, where we have they're called right-to-work states. 
So they've moved out of places where there's heavy union control, where the union and Michigan, they've just reversed right to work laws. So if you're not part of the union, they can still take a part of your paycheck and say they're representing you. And the right to work stakes, especially in the South, South uh, a lot of manufacturing plants for uh, cars, for airplanes have all moved down there where there's more, uh, they can hire more people, they have the skills there and they have access to ports there. So there's a lot of uh, things that are advantageous for manufacturing in the United States. It's just not in swing states, mm. uh, which get a lot of political attention. And that story gets lost in that, in that narrative that China stole the jobs. China didn't steal all those jobs. Uh, it's uh, right to work states stole a lot of those jobs. And productivity improvements productivity, that made right. them a lot less paperwork in manufacturing, but the output might be higher. I mean, I think there's also a story here about um, that needs to be told and, and said, which is it's a lot of the lower value manufacturing that you don't necessarily want to do. And that if you can specialize in the higher value manufacturing, as well as like the UK economy does as services sector, you're probably going to be richer and better off and you can trade for the, the manufacturing of those lower value goods at a lower cost for your consumers. So you know, it, overall, you are better off, even if you have to deal with the fact that some people aren't as well off as, as they might have been had they been protected at a massive cost to everyone else. I remember during the Trump presidency, we had the WTO decision on subsidies for Boeing and Airbus. So both sides had been subsidizing their production uh, to the extent that it was supporting exports rather than just promoting their uh, products. So we impose these tariffs on each other, even though a lot of Airbus parts uh, is made in the United States <laughs> and, uh, and, on, and Boeing manufacturing and other things that serve the European market that got caught up in these retaliatory tariffs. We were hurting both sides with these tariffs and we could, uh, it didn't need to happen. Yeah, ultimately it makes everyone more self. Well, Philip Thompson from the Americans for Tax Reform, as well as the author of the International Trade Barrier Index, thank you so much for joining the IA podcast. If you, if you are enjoying the podcast, uh, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA's work, including the IEA's work on trade, please do just visit iea.org.uk.